You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I'm your host, Miles Lassiter, founder and investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired, to be a founder, or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm your host, Miles Lassiter. On today's episode, we speak with Paul Niehaus. He's an economist and entrepreneur working to accelerate the end of extreme poverty. He's an associate professor of economics at UC San Diego. His research examines the design, implementation, and impact of anti-poverty programs at large scales. He's a co-founder and former president and current director at Give Directly, which is a leading, the leading international NGO specializing in digital cash transfers and consistently rated as one of the most impactful ways to give. GiveWell, for example, ranks them such. They've reached a million recipients out of the 800 million who are in extreme poverty. So a lot done and ways to go. He subsequently co-founded and serves as a director of the enterprise payments company Segovia, which was acquired, and the digital remittance company TapTapSend. Paul is recipient of a Sloan Fellowship and has been named a top 100 global thinker by Foreign Policy Magazine. He holds a PhD in economics from Harvard University. I'm such a fan of Give Directly that I've become a donor and I really enjoy my conversations with Paul. Today, we talked about the opportunity to do so much good for just a little bit of money, how people living in extreme poverty choose to use their cash. We talk about the differences between for-profit and nonprofit startups. We talk about the advantages to not being 100% committed into one thing, particularly when it's new or experimental. And he gives advice on a number of other issues. Stay tuned. I think you'll really enjoy it. Paul, thanks so much for coming on. It's great to have you. Thanks, Miles. It's great to be with you. So you've been working in international development for over a decade. I'm curious, what's changed about your view of this work? Surprises or learnings? It's been, yeah, it's been an exciting decade. You know, Forgive Directly and uh, Segovia TapTap organizationally, uh, for me personally, in terms of things that I've learned. Um, Obviously, there's an enormous amount. We could probably spend all day on that question, but I think some of the things that have really stood out to me, reflecting on the experience, I'd say first with GiveDirectly, there's just been a big lesson for me in the power in, in this sector in particular of getting out there and doing things. And I say that because the development sector as a whole, there's an enormous amount of talking, right? There's an enormous amount of writing and opining and conference gathering and thinking about what we should be doing. And so, you know, they're, they're, all that, you know, can be to the good and, and there's some good conversations to be had. But I think when we started Give Directly, we had this idea, this kind of crazy idea that, hey, maybe it would be good to just let people give money directly to folks living in extreme poverty and then let them decide what to do with it. You know, there were people that were talking and writing about that. There was a book that was coming out. And, you know, we sort of took this strategy of saying, well, let's actually just, just do it. Let's create a way for people to do this and see what happens. And I think that that was very provocative. And the fact that somebody was doing it and the, you know, sometimes the controversy that that generated sort of debate and the, you know, are these people crazy that came out of that? I think that was very good. And, and sort of in the long run, I think has probably done more to influence the way people think than if we had set out to try to influence the way people think. And so I think that for me has been one lesson that in a space where there's an enormous amount of talk about what other people should be doing, sometimes just getting out there and doing it can be symbolically more valuable. And, and you know, that will come as no surprise to many entrepreneurs um, to hear that message. So I think that's been one big one. 
Another big one, you know, perhaps a more pessimistic reflection has just been on the limits of scale to philanthropic models. I think about, you know, sort of the growth of the companies we've started, uh, give directly on the nonprofit side, maybe take TapTap, which is a consumer remittance business on the for-profit side. And, you know, I, I think that the returns to quality in these two product spaces are just very different. You know, so I think that I think that what GiveDirectly does is great. And I think that if we were in a for-profit marketplace with a product that is as good as the one we have, you know, we'd have some big share of the market, like a third of it or something like that. And what we actually have is like a couple of percentage points of the market in terms of giving to U.S. international. So, you know, I, I think that you see this in the sort of retention numbers, right? That even the very best nonprofits will maybe retain like 50% of their donors year on year. And so there's this constant effort to like literally just replace that revenue hole, let alone be you know, thinking big about growth and strategy and where you want to be in the, in the landscape and so forth. And so, you know, I think what that means is that there are great things you can do in the philanthropic space, but you know, sometimes when we, when we think about what's the best way to get money into the hands of people living in extreme poverty, we'd say maybe starting some businesses so that we have the money to give it ourselves would be a more effective use of our time than going out and fundraising for GiveDirectly, just because I think you have this separation, right, between the quality of what's happening on the ground and what donors experience on the other side. You know, I think that's been the other big lesson uh, for me. Um, you see this in the in the numbers, by the way. So if you look at who are the big international development nonprofits, it's basically been the same people for decades. There's a lot of stasis there, and they've been around for a very long time. Very different from if you look at who are the big players in a sector in the for profit uh, in the for profit business. So, so do um, don't talk. Do don't talk, and then I think you know be aware of the the sort of the limits to scale and the returns to quality of ideas in the philanthropic space. Um, but there are some great things that can be done there. But I think there is this fundamental limitation that the people donating are not the same as the people experiencing the product or the service that you're producing. And that always means there's going to be a bit of this uphill struggle in the sense that you can have something that's great, but people aren't experiencing it and coming back for it year after year, but just because it's so great. You know, from my point of view, if I give to give directly, I did that last year, next year, maybe I'll say, okay, well, what's next? You know, what's different? I want to do something new as opposed to toothpaste or a great remittance product or something like that, where, you know, like if it works, I'm coming back every year. And so that's the source of the donor churn, you think, is this novelty seeking. Yeah, and, and I totally get it. You know, I think about my own experiences with GiveDirectly. I remember, you know, the first couple of hundred people we sent money to, and we started to get some data back in terms of the impact that that was having. And uh, it really felt profound. You know, we saw that, like, kids were less likely to go to bed hungry. I felt really deeply moved by that. Um, you know, and I'm kind of a wonky guy. So I was looking at the spreadsheet with these numbers and, and just, you know, feeling very emotional, literally crying to think about that. And then, you know, you scale it up and you start doing this, you know, now we just reached uh, our 1 millionth recipient at GiveDirectly this fall, which is a great milestone. You know, you don't feel a million times better <laughs> than you did with the first recipient. And that's how it is with giving. You know? And so I think you always have to deal with that. I wonder if any of our listeners have ever cried with positive emotions over a spreadsheet. That's, uh, that's amazing. You also touched earlier on maybe it's better to earn your own money by starting a company and then giving rather than doing all this fundraising. Is that something you're seriously pursuing? Yeah, I mean, it's something that, you know, we did to an extent. So uh, sort of Michael, my co-founder at GiveDirectly, and I also then went on to start a couple of for-profit companies, Segovia and TapTap. And so when we started, we donated, you know, from the beginning, some of the equity in those to give directly. And so that's been one path, you know, to sort of generate, you know, money revenue for give directly is by doing that. And then I think you also see that in terms of where some of the really dynamic new mega philanthropy is coming from, right? It's coming from entrepreneurs who have made a lot of money often in tech and are, are you know, now looking for transformative ways to give it. 
And so, you know, I think there are some real issues that raises, right, that have been pointed out in terms of the degree of inequality we're willing to tolerate and what sorts of tax privileges and benefits and esteem we should give to people who make these enormous fortunes and then turn to giving it away. But, um, you know, just in a very pragmatic sense, if you want to think about, you know, how can I spend my time to generate as much money as possible for my philanthropic endeavors, I think the answer will often be by earning money as opposed to going around trying to persuade other people to donate theirs. And when you say you donated those shares ahead of time, the nonprofit now owns a piece of these two for-profit startup companies. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it's it's great symbolically. It's a very clear commitment, right? That from the start, there's it's irrevocable, right? We've donated the shares and there's no donating them back. So it's great. It's actually tax disadvantaged, right? So from a pure tax perspective, it's better to, to wait. <laughs> so uh, there's a bit of a trade-off there, but, uh, but yeah, we chose to do that. And I think that was a, a good decision. Interesting. Yeah, I was going to wonder about the tax side, but also, you know, communities like Founders Pledge, we've had the founder on our podcast, you know, promote this idea of giving once you've you've made it, but you pledge up front and you're moving that gift earlier by doing that, which gives the nonprofit a stake in the success of the business. Is that a factor? Yeah, you know, as part of our thinking, you know, Founders Pledge wasn't around at the time. And so that's great that there's now a way that you can pledge and perhaps make a bit a bit stronger of a commitment. And so, you know, we're, I guess, signatories to that sort of, uh, you know, retrospectively in the sense that we had already donated. And uh, so we signed up, you know, happy to sign the pledge. You know, I, I think in terms of what it means for the relationship between the organizations, you know, you really don't want to incentivize the nonprofit to do things that are going to help the for-profit. So that's not the vision, right? That would create some conflict of issue, of interest issues. Um, and we didn't want that. But I also think that we wanted to communicate in a really credible way to people that, look, the, the purpose here, the vision is not to somehow take something that was done within the nonprofit and then monetize it in a way that's going to be enriching for us personally, right? The purpose here, the vision is to build things that are going to be useful for the nonprofit, for other nonprofits, for other for-profits as well. But, you know, we want that all to be very beneficial for Give Directly, both in terms of the products that they get access to and also in this very direct financial way. So you discovered the market need for at least one of your startups by working on Give Directly. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the sort of the dynamics of the story, just a very standard story of sort of forward and backward integration in terms of how these things uh, came about. So, um, you know, the, the sort of the high level story here is we started Give Directly in 2011. And, uh, and that started growing quite rapidly. We grew to about 50 million in revenue in the course of the first couple of years. We're at a scale now where we're starting to issue bulk payments through a lot of these digital payments platforms around uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. And the, um, you know, the tools and the integrations for doing that weren't great. And so we were started looking at this and saying, look, at the scales that we're operating, we don't want to be uploading spreadsheets into somebody's website. We want to have you know, a strong integration with enterprise quality systems, a lot of error checking and um, and sort of tight control over what's happening. And, and so, you know, we, we felt the need for that. And so we built Segovia, which was the first business to provide that, to provide a sort of integrated layer that would give you access to all of these emerging payments networks in a bunch of countries for people like GiveDirectly that wanted to send money philanthropically for other NGOs, government programs that wanted to do that, but also for people that were, you know, working in the agricultural supply chain, right, that are procuring things from small farmers and want to be able to pay them um, or for remittances, which turns out to be one of the big use cases, right? If you've migrated to Europe and you want to be able to send money back home to your family, then, um, you know, this is an obvious channel for doing that. So, you know, that was step number one. 
And then, you know, in the process of building Segovia, we saw that remittances were one of the, you know, the really compelling use cases for this, and that um, you're starting to see people build this on top of the new mobile payments infrastructure, and you're bypassing the old players, the Western unions and the MoneyGrams of the world, who really relied on their own brick and mortar infrastructure. And what mobile money doing is letting you bypass that and say anywhere there's a mobile money agent that can now be an endpoint for someone to cash out a remittance payment. Um, and so, you know, we were serving some people doing that. We felt like they could be moving faster, or frankly, that we could move faster. And so that was the uh, genesis of TapTap, which was the third company we started. And TapTap adds that consumer remittance layer on top of the Segovia infrastructure, where you know, anybody who's migrated to Europe or other countries wants to send money home um, can send money back to their family in Africa. And there's still a rather high fees in the marketplace for these kinds of remittances, right? Yeah, they're coming down. You know, I mean, it sort of takes time. And um, it's, it's funny, you know, back in, you still see some of these corridors, right, where you see, you know, 8, 9, 10% pricing, but I think that's becoming much more rare. We set a goal, a tap tap, a sort of company vision or mission of 3%, you know, that we wanted to bring pricing down to 3% on all the quarters we operated. And that would be our price consistently. And it's, uh, it's funny because it turns out that's also one of the sustainable development goals, which I had no idea. There are so many of the sustainable de- development goals, you can't keep track of them. But you know, I think that just it, it, it symbolizes and, and, and uh, recognizes the importance of remittances to low-income populations around the world, right? That it's such an important lifeline for families individual and also such an important driver of capital flows into these uh, economies of low-income countries. So you've taken advantage of the rise of mobile and mobile payments. There's been a lot of talk of crypto for the remittance use that using the blockchain could drive those prices down, but I think we haven't really seen the promise of it yet. What's your take on that? Yeah, that's right. Not yet. Um, I mean, I think where, where you do see it already is as a fallback option in some places where governance is just really poor, right? So in places like Zimbabwe and Venezuela, where the fiat currency is just so broken, it is actually valuable for people to be able to fall back on something like crypto and use that, you know, just as a store of value or as a medium for exchange. So, so you're already seeing some of that. I think that, you know, you could see in the future some real value for cross-border payments um, because that's still a very opaque market, right? It's, you know, very decentralized. It's hard to figure out, you know, when we say what is the exchange rate on any given day, the answer is actually, you know, we're not really sure. And, there are a bunch of different exchange rates. So, you know, so that's not a, a super transparent or centralized market. And so you could imagine that as liquidity deepens, right, and there's more volume in crypto, that actually becomes the most effective way to turn a dollar into a shilling. We're not there yet, but I think that's something one could imagine. I, I also think there's just been a role in terms of getting people excited about digital payments and about the possibilities. So even if it's crypto that you first hear about, and then from there you hear about mobile money and start to understand what that's doing. Um, that's valuable. I think a lot of you know donors have come to give directly that way. For example, who have you know made money through crypto or gotten excited about digital payments through crypto. But the thing that that we have to recognize, which I think is what you're getting at, is that the problem it's not solving yet is the last mile problem, which is at the end of the day, if somebody sends me money, you know, where am I going to be getting that and cashing it out? Because currently, what people are doing is they're cashing it out right from their mobile wallet. They're not leaving it in there and using it as a wallet. And so, you know, for that, there's still this logistics problem of managing a network of agents across, you know, rural landscape. That's the problem that the mobile money providers are solving. When you talk about those mobile money providers, was that the main, why now? Was that the main logistical barrier that you had to overcome to start GiveDirectly originally? Yeah, that's right. We always talk about two things. One is the technology. Um, The other is the evidence. And so, you know, with respect to technology, we actually first heard of some, learned of some other payment models. I was talking to a guy in India 
we were doing some work, uh, some work on anti-corruption there. And he had a model where he would put like a mobile ATM on the back of a motorcycle and send that guy around to the village and, and then come back to the branch bank at the end of the day. So lots of people were experimenting with different ways of trying to extend digital payment rails to everybody in the countryside. But, you know, it was clear that, you know, we look at it, that mobile payments were the thing that was really taking off starting in Kenya and then throughout the rest of sub-Saharan Africa. And so absolutely, you know, we saw, first of all, from a technical perspective, there's this incredible opportunity that we're now, you know, we live in or are very close to a world where we can pay anybody very cheaply, very securely. And so the question is no longer, can we, you know, are we worried about the money getting stolen along the way, things like that. The question really is, should we? But that should be the other really big piece, right? Because for a very long time, a lot of people, you know, I heard this, right? You don't just give money to people. It's not that simple. Poverty is a much more complicated problem than all that. And so all these adages, you know, teach a man to fish, right? As opposed to give a man to fish. And so the other big thing that changed right around the same time was that starting in the early 2000s, we began to test a lot of these ideas about development and about extreme poverty experimentally. For the first time. And so that really began to change. You first started to get the first, you know, A-B tests, if you will, right, of, of uh, foreign aid um, around then. And um, it's just now been recognized, right, in 2019 with the Nobel Prize to the economists who advocated for this and popularized this approach. You know, what it meant at the time was that we were just learning a whole bunch and a bunch of the things that we thought we knew, the sort of received wisdom about anti-poverty was getting overturned, right? So there were things that, that seemed to make a lot of intuitive sense, like let's give people job skills training and try to make them more employable and make it easier for them to find a job or start their own business. You know, it sounds great in principle. If we were good at that, that would be a wonderful thing to do. In the data, it seemed like we're actually just not very good at that, right? The, the returns on those interventions tend to be pretty low. Um, and then in contrast to that, you know, just simply giving people money and letting them do what they wanted with it, that's turning out to work really well in the sense that people are consistently doing, uh, you know, sensible looking things that improve their lives. They're, they are addressing some of today's needs, but they're also making investments in the future. In some cases, they're starting businesses with the capital they're receiving. And so I think there was this real sea change in terms of what do the data actually say about the impacts of giving money to people. And that was the second critical leg. Because obviously we're facing a lot of doubt and a lot of people are saying, well, you know, I'm not sure, should I really trust these people if I give my money to them? And the data were essential for making that case. And when you talk about data, you've been known to say that you have to show an intervention is better than cash giving. That should be the basic default option. Otherwise, can you explain a little more how do you tell if something's better or worse? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it, that default language, I think, is great. You know, sort of starting off by saying, if I want to help somebody, let's think of the default as being to take the money I have and giving it to them. And then let's think about when are there reasons to believe I could do better than that by doing something different. Um, and so I think for me, the broad philosophy here is just to find ways of designing and architecting your decision-making process that discipline you to ask that question in a meaningful way. And, you know, I have in the back of my mind this point that like when we do charitable work, there is this missing market discipline, right? So, you know, in our companies, if our product sucks, we're going to see that in the data quickly because people aren't going to buy it, right? They're not going to be willing to pay for it. When you do charitable work, you have this problem, right? That your product can suck and people will still accept it because it's free and you don't have that feedback loop, right? So I'm thinking in the back of my mind, how do we build in some of that feedback loop to make sure that the things we're doing are really worth the cost of those um, to the people that we're trying to help? Um, but then in terms of how you operationalize this, right? There are different, actually different ways that different people have done it that I think can be interesting. Um, so to give you some sense of the range, you know, we have a foundation, Unorthodox Philanthropy, that was one of the first Give Directly funders. They've sort of taken the approach of saying any money that we have at the end of the year that we haven't given to anything else, 
we're going to give as cash transfers to people living in extreme poverty, right? So they have an amount, a budget for the year. They have to pay out at least 5% of their endowment under U.S. law. Um, and so what that means is that then any other decision they make during the year, they think of it as, you know, can we find something that would be better than cash transfers? And that becomes the hurdle rate, if you will, for the other investments that they think about. Um, so that's one way of doing it. We have a partnership with USAID, which is really exciting. Um, USAID, the government, the U.S. government's foreign aid agency, um, they have set up a series of cash benchmarking experiments where we're literally going out to the field with them and taking some of their conventional programming, you know, which could be one of these job skills, livelihoods interventions, for example, and then uh, comparing it side by side with the impacts of cash transfers on the outcomes they care about. So, you know, if the goal is to increase employment or to increase earnings, we're going to run a study where we A-B test these two things and say, well, which one of these things per dollar actually increases employment or earnings more? Um, and that's really powerful for them because, you know, USAID gets money with these tight restrictions that say, you know, Congress has given you money and it's for employment in Rwanda. And so you need to demonstrate that your programming is going to have a positive impact on employment in Rwanda. So within the institutional context that they're operating, I think that approach uh, to decision making sense. So, um, you know, I think there are different ways you could do it. I'll, I'll just close by saying the thing that I would do, which I think if I were running a nonprofit other than give directly, um, which I think would be very exciting, is actually to give the end recipient themselves the choice, is to say to them, we have this intervention, we think it's great, we think it'll help you, it'll make your life better, it costs us, say, $200 to deliver it, what would you rather have? Would you rather have this training program, or would you rather have the 200 bucks, and see what people say? And even if you did that for just a sample of people, what you're doing is, you know, you're empowering them, Right? So they're getting a real choice now in uh, sort of how their lives are shaped and influenced that they typically don't have in the aid sector. Um, and you're getting that market feedback. You're starting to see, okay, you know, 50% of people, 75% of people like what I have to offer more than the cost of producing it. That's good. Or maybe it's not so good. And I want to go back and tinker and try to make some changes. But I think, you know, that's what I would do to build in some of that feedback and create some accountability for my organization to the people that I'm ultimately trying to help. That's a fascinating concept. And it provides that kind of market discipline that you're saying. You're getting direct feedback from the people you're trying to help. But it doesn't work in larger coordination issues, infrastructure, climate change, things like that, right? Yeah, you need to think of it differently there. I mean, there what we do, you know, the way we, we organize decisions like that is through institutions for making those kinds of collective choices. So, you know, think about it at the level of a community of a village, if they're thinking about whether to invest in, you know, in building a road or a health clinic or a new school or things like this, you know, there we want to have elected leaders make these decisions or perhaps vote on them directly. Right? And so there, you know, I think you can extend the analogy, but you have to start thinking about institutions that let us make decisions collectively as a society, as opposed to individually. The point though, I think still holds that you'd like for there to be some of that accountability to the people that we're trying to help and not only to the people that are putting the money up front on the donor side. That makes sense. Don't just listen, get engaged. Join our giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. And who knows, the startup that you fund may be on Startups for Good one day. So what's the difference between running a nonprofit and a for-profit? Right, there are a lot. <laughs> I guess, you know, one of them, which we've talked about a bunch already, which I think is really first order, is this information environment, right? This point that in a for-profit, you're getting constant feedback from your sales or your uh, user data in terms of how much people like the product. 
And you know, on the nonprofit side, you're going to get some of that from donors in the sense that you'll see who's donating, but you're not getting that from recipients typically. And so um, there, I think the top priority would be to think about ways to build that in. So you can do that with mechanisms like the one I described, where you give people some real choice over what they get. Um, at GiveDirectly, we do a lot to gather feedback from people that's uh, much more process oriented, you know, just getting a sense of, you know, did, did you get the transfers okay? Did people communicate clearly to you, treat you respectfully? But you know, I think you really need to sort of go the extra mile to build in those kinds of feedback loops because they don't exist automatically. Um, so I think that's one, the information environment. Two, which we talked about a little bit, is I think the, the, the market, the sort of returns in the market to product quality, right? Just the difference between having a great remittance product where, you know, if you're keeping people happy, 90% of them are going to come back next year um, and having a great philanthropic product where maybe it's 50% if you're doing really well. And just all of the implications that follow from that in terms of where you have to spend your time as an organizational leader, how much bandwidth you have for thinking about the big picture and so forth. And then the last one, though, you know, which is actually the reason that we ended up or sort of one of the things that tipped us into creating Segovia, the first for-profit, is the resources that you have access to. And so, you know, when we were thinking about building the technology that Segovia ultimately created, we did think about building it inside of the nonprofit initially. And there are a few issues uh, with that. One was that we found it difficult to hire the talent, the engineering talent that we wanted. We had some fascinating conversations with people where they said, you know, look, here's what, uh, here's market for me. This is what I'd expect to get paid. And, uh, and we said, okay, like, we'll do that. Like, we think it's worth it. We want to get great people at GiveDirectly. And we still do, by the way, we pay, you know, relatively well at GiveDirectly for a nonprofit. Uh, but then people would say, well, you know what, that's great. But I actually, I don't want to be the jerk that's getting paid that much money to work at a nonprofit because that's going to look really bad. It's going to be embarrassing. And so we said, well, there's just a real deep issue here in terms of talent markets for, for nonprofits, at least when you start looking at some of these very high paying sectors like tech, data science, um, engineering, things like that. So, um, so I think the talent piece was one. We also had, you know, in terms of financial resources, we had people that were giving to give directly. We also had people who said, you know what, I love what you guys are doing, but I'm not into philanthropy right now. I want to invest. And so if at some point you guys do something on the for-profit side, uh, give me a call back and we'll talk. And so we knew there were some pools of capital there that we'd have access to only if we did something on the for-profit side. And then the last piece there was legal, right? Which is that if you if you create what looks like a business inside of a nonprofit in the sense that there's something revenue generating, uh, you know, long story, but there's a chance that the IRS may take away your tax exempt status and there's no way to find out in advance whether or not they're going to do that. So it's just a big legal risk. And so, you know, those are some of the factors that sort of pushed us to this view that these need to be, they both need to happen but they need to be structured separately from a corporate point of view. And how did you think about putting together the teams? It sounded like you had people telling you they want to give you money. You had identified need for Segovia uh, or TapTap, either one you want to talk about. And, and how did you put together that initial team? Yeah, for, I mean, for GiveDirectly, which was our first, you know, we really started with what we have in the sense of, you know, who are, who are the, what are the networks we have access to and the really, really, really smart talented, motivated people. And so initially we were hiring, I think, a lot of people that looked like ourselves. And a big part of the journey at GiveDirectly over the years as we've expanded and grown into a whole bunch of different countries across the world is to get to know local talent markets in those places so that the teams working in each country, you know, the team in Liberia, the team in the DRC, those teams start to look, you know, like the people um, that, you know, they're actually trying to serve in terms of the demographics and the knowledge of local markets and, and ways of operating and so forth. So I think that's been the, the vector of the learning curve for us to give directly. At Segovia and then at TapTap, you know, this was uh, sort of initially much more like just, you know, building a tech startup, right? A small team of engineers and some data science and things like that. I think one thing that was really interesting is that at TapTap, 
which is the consumer remittance business, when it came to how we were actually going to communicate to our customers and reach out to these, to this audience, which is of, of migrants, primarily in Europe, which is where we started sending money back home. We decided to do it in a very old fashioned way in the sense it's very much boots on the ground, people getting out into the community, to the places where people gather. If you're, you know, a Senegalese migrant to France or to Italy or something like that, and talking to people about this and talking to community leaders who can then uh, relay the message as opposed to a sort of digital heavy, you know, let's get on Facebook and blast out, you know, targeted ads and so forth. And so, you know, there's this big community building aspect of it, kind of getting people out there on the ground as well, which was uh, really fun and sort of very different to have, you know, a business that was on the one hand, very tech strong and tech heavy. And then on the other hand, had this real kind of community building boots on the ground piece to it as well. Um, I think that was really neat. And what did that require you to do differently in terms of running the company or the team? Differently from the community building side versus like a tech heavy team. Well, I mean, I think it kind of puts you in much closer contact with customers, which is great, you know, in the sense that if you, if you blast out a Facebook ad and you don't get a lot of response, you get a click through rate and sort of think about what to, how, what you can tweak to increase that click through rate. It's just a very different feedback dynamic from when you have PT members who are actually out there in the community talking to people and getting their stories and hearing about what's working and complaining if something's not working, you know, rightfully so kind of bringing to your attention things that are broken and needs to be fixed. So I think it's much more personal and it is, you know, more, there's more upfront cost there, but I think that the learning that you get from it is so much richer and more valuable. Um, I think that was a really important driver for us. So when would you recommend that someone use a similar tactic? Is that when your customers are spending less time online or when you have a kind of product that requires a high level of trust or something else? Yeah, I think I would, I would emphasize trust. It's not that folks are not online. You know, in fact, there are sort of Facebook groups that are really important uh, sort of gathering places, or, you know, hubs for communication and learning and things like that. But it's, it's, it's backed by real world relationships that it's sort of people who actually know each other in real life as well as online. And I think that, you know, because what we're doing is, you know, we're asking people to take all the money they've earned, right? Which is the reason that they've migrated and the reason that they're separated from their wife and their children and, and to send that money back home through us. And we're promising to safeguard it. So yeah, trust is really a big deal. And I think that's, uh, that, that's one of the, the main reasons that the, the sort of the, the in-person, the personal strategy is important. Now you started a nonprofit, two startups, and through much of this, you've also been an academic. How do you balance all of that? I'm not sure that I balance it well. I try. I, you know, I think that the first thing I'd say is that it's, it's changed over time. You know, there have been periods, periods, you know, where I'm primarily focused on research. And there have been times, you know, it was a year where I took a leave of absence from my job here to be able to focus on starting up some of these things and with the team on those. So, you know, I'm, I'm always thinking about that, you know, am I getting the right balance and how should I adjust it back and forth? The second big thing is that, you know, it's all very much about the team. And so, you know, to the extent this has worked for me, it's been because I've worked with teams that have been supportive of it and have helped me think about where can I spend the, you know, the amount of time that I have to allocate to this in the ways that are going to be most helpful and contributory to, to what we're trying to do together. And so, you know, it, it's not at all a story of like, you know, the great individual is able to do three things at the same time, whereas like the common mortal would only be able to do one. It's really much more about, you know, if I want to work as part of multiple teams, how do I do that in a way that's responsible, where I can honor the commitments I'm making to people and they're helping me to learn and get the best out of me that they can. So, you know, I think that's sort of the big picture of it. I, I think some of the things that have like worked really well, which might not have been obvious to me up front were one is sort of the unique voice that you can have when you're coming into a space, you know, like entrepreneurial startup, you know, but with this very different identity as a researcher, as an academic as well. 
And so there are you know, negatives to that in the sense that some people will look at you and say, well, how, you know, am I confident that this person's really going to be able to execute in the way that I want my startup founder to do? But there's also credibility, I think, that comes with saying, you know, I, I'm actively reading and even producing a lot of the cutting edge research on impact. And I can, we can talk about that. Right? And that's something that's different and differentiating for us compared to the other people that might be coming in to pitch people on their you know, startup model, their nonprofit, their NGO, and so forth. So, so I think that was really uh, you know, a positive. I think, too, that especially with GiveDirectly, there is some value in having a degree of independence, at least initially. You know, I think back and like all four of the founders, although we were putting an enormous amount of time into it, we all had another way of putting food on the table at the time. And so there's certainly a drawback in the sense that we're not able to commit 100% of our hours to the effort. But I think there's also this sense that, you know, we're trying this new risky thing. And if it turns out, you know, if it doesn't work, if it turns out that it's not actually a good idea, you know, it's not going to be the end of the world for us. And I think, you know, it's really challenging if you imagine starting up a nonprofit and, you know, it turns out you do your first impact evaluation, let's say, and the results come back negative, it's not having the impact you hoped. I think it's really tough to be upfront and honest about that when it's your livelihood and it's everything that you've poured yourself into for the last couple of years. So I think the financial and also the emotional diversification of not having any one thing be all that matters to you, be all consuming, you know, can be valuable because it lets you be honest if it's not working and, and talk to people about that. So when I think of GiveDirectly, for example, about some of the big setbacks or failures that we had in the early days, you know, cases where there was significant fraud, where maybe like, you know, around 5% of the money um, that we sent as part of a particular project got stolen because our, our security systems controls weren't tight enough. You know, I think we felt a lot of freedom to be very open with people about that and to say, hey, you know, something went wrong. Here's why. Here's what we're doing to fix it. And I think in the long run, that built a lot of trust that donors came to view us as people that would be straight with them about you know, issues like that. And I wonder if we'd have felt the same freedom to do that if I felt like you know, this is my job and I could lose my job and not be able to feed my kids. That's a fascinating perspective. And I think different than one you often hear in startup land, which is commit early and work all the time on your startup. And you're saying instead, particularly in the early days, if you're really doing something new and experimental, be open to the feedback that maybe it doesn't work and you'll be more open to that if you have a diversity of income and other emotional attachments. Fascinating. Yeah, and I'm not saying it, it universally, you know, as blanket advice, but I think that in a case like GiveDirectly, where we're doing this, you know, as you say, this sort of very new thing and where we want to be able to be honest with people if it turns out not to work as well as we thought, you know, I think that there's some value in that. Another way you see it, by the way, is you can see it in terms of sort of diversification within an organization. So Evidence Action, which is another NGO that I like that implements sort of really high quality evidence-based interventions, had this happen to them where one of the big things they had been doing, you know, they did the initial test of it looked very good. And then they did the next higher scale test and the results came back actually pretty negative. It seemed like it wasn't working. And so, you know, but what they had, they had the ability to then take the people that had been working on that project and put them onto another one, you know, where the evidence was looking stronger. So because they had this portfolio approach, they're able to reallocate. And I think that again, makes it easier for them to be upfront with donors and say, Hey, you know what? We thought this thing was great. Turns out it isn't. And so we're going to move on. But I think if that's the only thing you do, then that's much harder. So we've talked a lot about the beginning story in the early times. I'm curious also to talk about growth, scale, and eventual exit. So let's start with, with GiveDirectly. What is your thinking around scale? What's your goal size for the organization? Yeah, it's uh, to be honest, this is a question that we've really struggled with for a very long time. And I think I've only just gotten some clarity on it. And, and the reason it's so hard is because, I mean, first, extreme poverty is a very big 
problem in some sense, right? You know, there are sort of, a, you know, probably about 700, maybe 800 million people in the world now. Um, it was lower, but after the pandemic. And obviously, give directly, we reached a million people. We're nowhere close to that scale yet. We want to get there. And so it's hard to communicate to people sort of how much is enough. Like if I were to talk to you, Miles, and say, how much, how, you know, what's the ask, Paul? Like, how much do you want me to give? How do I even begin? You know, I mean, I'd say, well, you should always give more right? because there are always more people in extreme poverty whose lives are going to be massively benefited by you giving. So, but, you know, I think that the way I think about this now, and we started to think about this, which I'm quite excited about is, you know, we can do the math now in terms of what it would take to eliminate extreme poverty globally. And, you know, I'm talking about very simple math, not sort of assumptions about if we do this, then this will happen. But I'm just saying, if we had to give everybody living in extreme poverty enough money so that they would no longer be in extreme poverty, how much would that be? And so I think we're at the point where we can start to do that math and then say, you know, what does that look like for us as donors in rich countries? And, you know, we can get in details, but I think it works out to around like one or 2% in the sense that if, if you, Miles, and I, Paul, and everybody else living in the US and the rich countries in Europe, if we all signed up to give one or maybe 2% away of our annual income and gave that to give directly, I think give directly can then eliminate extreme poverty because we can do well enough at finding the right people and giving them the right amount of money we can make the math add up. And so to me, that is really like clarifying and motivating to say like, wow, that's really all it takes. It's like a one or 2%, right? And that seems like something that, uh, you know, I could sign up for personally, for sure. And I think I could ask you to sign up for and other people to say, you know, that's what doing your bit to end extreme poverty looks like. And then let's go out there and get people to do it. So that's now how I think about, you know, the, what scale we want to get to absolutely ending extreme poverty, but also what's the math in terms of how we get to there and what does it mean for each of us individually? I think there's a lot of clarity there now, which I'm excited about. Is that one or 2% of GDP? Yeah. If you add it all up, exactly. Yeah. And that's on an ongoing basis. Is that a universal basic income approach? Or how are you thinking? Yeah, that's right. But that would be to start. And then, you know, presumably what will happen is that number will come down a lot over time because, you know, as we know, people have steadily been getting out of extreme poverty on their own and their incomes are going to rise. So, you know, think of it as an upper bound in terms of what we need in five years or in 10 years, assuming that, you know, those trends continue. COVID being the big interruption, right, or the big uh, temporary setback, but I think it will be temporary. So, so, but, you know, I think that's my point is that, you know, it's, it's significant, right? Certainly 1% of GDP is not peanuts. But, you know, from any one person's point of view, if that's the ask to give that up, I think that's well worth it to say, I've done my part to end extreme poverty. It certainly seems achievable from a personal perspective and is inspiring. I am really struck because I've read about these surveys of average people who think that the U.S. government's already giving more than that in GDP to foreign aid. That's right. Yes. And I'm always wondering when I read about that, if the people who have that conception think that's not working or is being wasted and how they would think about something like this. It's always fascinating me. Yeah, there are two big misperceptions, right? I think that one is that one that you, that you named, that you know, we think we're giving more than we actually are collectively. And then the other big one is whether the problem is getting better or worse on its own, right? And so uh, Hans Rosling in, in Factfulness, this is one of the key you know, he, he points to a bunch of these things where people tend to have too pessimistic a view of what's happening in the world um, that isn't supported by the facts. And one of the key examples he points to is that if you ask people, you know, what's happening with extreme poverty, is it getting better or worse? You know, a, a vast majority of people in wealthy countries think that it's getting worse and they aren't aware that that's 
untrue, right? It's the opposite that a lot of people have been getting out of extreme poverty on their own. And so that contributes, I think, to the fatalism of like, oh, it's such a big problem. How will we ever be able to do anything about it? And also to the paternalism, this sort of idea that like, oh, people are stuck. And unless we come up with some really clever solution to the problem, they're never going to get out of it. You know, totally not true, right? They are getting out of it. They have been getting out of it on their own consistently in very large numbers. And it's really just a question of how can we contribute to accelerating that? Now, you've been doing this large scale universal basic income experiment. When are we going to have results from that? Or what can you share that you've learned so far? Yeah. Well, um, just first for people who may not know, this is a, it's an exciting experiment. It's looking at universal basic income in rural communities in Kenya. And it's, um, it's exciting because it's by far the largest uh, of, its, of its kind looking at the impacts of universal basic income. There have been tons and tons of pilots of UBI now around the world but they typically have the, the sort of limitations that they're done at a small scale in terms of the, uh, the, the sort of people who get money. So it'll be an individual family who get money as opposed to an entire village in the case of Kenya. So they're not universal in a meaningful sense, right? Whereas in this case, we are sort of everybody in a community is getting money and we can look at the effects of that. And then the second is how long do the transfers last? So there have been a number of these pilots that run for a year or two. And so, you know, you learn something there from that about what people do when they get a bit of money. But what you don't learn about is what do they do if they know that for the foreseeable future, they're going to be having their basic needs met. And so that's what the experiment in Kenya does, because there we've made a commitment of up to 12 years, basic income payments to people. So, um, you know, we feel like that's really what's needed is to be experimenting with this big idea at a really big scale, because that's really the essence of the idea itself. And so we put out some results already, actually, that look at what was happening during the pandemic. We did a quick round of surveys just to get a sense of how are people weathering this you know, unexpected, enormous uh, shock that hit Kenya, like many other places. And so we have some data out on that. Um, and then we're in the midst of crunching the rest of the data from the first round of, of surveys we did, uh, actually hoping to start writing the paper on that in the next week or two. So academic timelines being what they are, you know, unpredictable, but, uh, but you know, we're sort of, I think we have a pretty good sense now and are ready to start talking about what we're seeing. And so you know, just to preview some of that, I think in terms of some of the big questions we have, you know, absolutely, you're seeing that when you uh, pour a lot of money like this into these low-income rural communities, it has a big effect on all the business activity around them. So it's not just that households are getting transfers, but it's also that local businesses are now seeing an uptick in business. And so you see new business creation, you see big increases in revenue at these businesses and in profit. You see an increase in the variety of goods and services that are being sold locally. So there's just an expansion of the economy overall in a bunch of dimensions. And you know, what I thought was really interesting in terms of how people spend their time, um, which is one of the big questions that we always have, right? Is if, if we give people a basic income, does that mean they're not gonna work as much on their own? Um, so we're not, we're not seeing that. We're seeing that the total amount of time people spend working is about the same, but what you're seeing is that they're shifting. And so they're shifting from working for other people for a wage into self-employment, right? Running their own business and spending time in their own business, their family business. And so why is that going on? You know, probably there are different things happening. To some extent, you know, they're taking advantage of these new opportunities that exist because all of their neighbors are wealthier and can afford to buy things from their shop. To some extent, you know, maybe they're using the UBI transfers themselves as capital to finance the investment they need to start or grow um, their own business. But in any case, you are seeing this move away from wage labor into self-employment, um, entrepreneurship, if you, if you will, since that's what their podcast is about. Um, and you see wages are going up as a result that there's this upward pressure on wages in the community because it costs more to get somebody to come and work for you. In fact, you see more hiring in of labor from outside the community 
to come and do some of these jobs within the community that perhaps folks living there are no longer doing themselves. Um, so, you know, there's really interesting stuff happening in the economy and in labor markets as a result of this. It's not a simple story if people work, work more and work less, but it's more about the kinds of work they do and how the economy restructures around that. That's fascinating. When people are coming out of extreme poverty, they tend more towards self-employment. And it's interesting because when you ask people, a lot of times they say that what they want is a steady job, right? So there is this like romanticization of low-income people as, you know, they all have such great entrepreneurial potential. And, you know, I, I think they're like us that, you know, some of them have great ideas or, you know, are willing to take the risk of being self-employed. Many of them would like the stability of a steady job. Um, at a big company. And so, um, you know, it, it, I think that it's easy to look at the numbers and always assume self-employment is good, wage employment is bad. That's not what we're saying here, uh, but we're saying that it does seem like UBI is creating some opportunities uh, for that, that people do want to take advantage of. Are you saying that in some cases they may, like their first choice is saying is to work for a larger company, but that's not available. So they're taking the second choice of self-employment and, and third choice was working at a lower wage job. Yeah, I mean, to give you an example, another time that you sometimes see increases in self-employment is after a drought, right? Because there aren't jobs to be had working on other people's farms because the farms aren't productive. And so people will then go into self-employment, but it's really sort of entrepreneurship of necessity or desperation, if you will, because there's just nothing else they can do with their time in order to put a bit of food on the table. So, you know, what I'm saying is we need to be careful when we look at numbers like this to say, is it that kind of entrepreneurship or is it, you know, in this case, Kind of clearly entrepreneurship of opportunity, right? Where there are new opportunities available to people in the village that didn't exist before the UBI transfers came in. Gotcha. Well, thanks for sharing that. I'm also curious, you mentioned the pandemic a few times about the work you've done in reaction, including launching a program in the US. Yeah, this has been, you know, a big part of the journey for GiveDirectly. Um, you know, GiveDirectly in 2020 scaled up by a factor of six over what we did in 2019. And the U.S. response was a big part of that. And just, you know, kudos to the team who really kind of independently on their own came up with this approach, which they were able to set up in a matter of weeks as the pandemic hit. Uh, so it's a partnership with Propel, which provides electronic EBT solution and let us target people who are receiving EBT, right, electronic benefit transfers, formerly food stamps. So low-income populations in hard-hit areas of the country. And, you know, that ended up yeah, being very big. And so I think it was great to do some of this in our own backyard. Although the sort of main vision and ethos I give directly is and has always been extreme poverty. I think it hits a bit closer to home for people in the sense that it's a bit more relatable. You know, if you've grown up in the U.S., you can understand in some sense what struggling in the U.S. looks like, what being hit by a big shock like this, losing your job, what that looks like in the U.S. Whereas it's very hard to imagine what is it like to be born into a small holding farmer family in a rural part of Kenya, right? I just, you know, that's just harder for us to imagine. So I think it brings it closer to home and it's kind of easier than to see like, yeah, I get it. It makes sense that people are struggling. It's not through any fault of their own. It makes sense to give them money and let them use it in the way that seems best to them. And so I think one of the big questions for us now is, you know, people have had that recognition during the pandemic and here in the US and to what extent can we then transfer that reasoning and say, I get it. You know, actually that's also in some ways what being born into extreme poverty is like, right? It means you just, you know, for no fault of your own or no lack of individual initiative, you just don't have access to the same opportunities and resources. And so I think we are seeing some of that, that actually people who kind of initially gave to the U.S. relief work are now also getting involved overseas and giving there, um, which to me is one of the most exciting things to have come out of it. In addition, obviously, to the, just the, you know, the great opportunity to have supported people through a hard time here. Do you think the U.S. government was inspired by programs like yours in the COVID response being so cash-based? 
I, I guess I wouldn't claim so much direct credit uh, in the sense that um, there are lots of good people making this point that we should be moving towards more cash-based assistance and there, you know, things like that happening now in terms of the current administration's proposals and plans. But I guess what I'd say is I, I think that I, I would claim that GiveDirectly through its existence and its work over the last 10 years has really helped to legitimize the idea and the approach. You know, I think if you think about a world in which there's no NGO that lets you send money to people living in extreme poverty. It sort of raises the question like, well, why not? You know, and maybe if, if we've all collectively decided that there doesn't even need to be such an organization, maybe that's not such a great idea. And so I think it has been an important legitimizer for the broader idea. And it's a powerful idea. I hope it inspires some more people to get involved. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, Miles. It was really fun. I appreciate this and, and you know, the chance to talk about such a wide range of topics and about the, uh, you know, the differences between entrepreneurship in different spheres. Yeah, a lot of fun and, 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 and I'm thankful for the thoughtful questions. Wonderful. If people want to follow you online, where, where should they do that? Yeah, Twitter. Paul F. Niehaus is probably the best place. I'm not super active, but if I have anything that I feel is important to say, I say it there. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Thanks, Miles. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Reviews really do help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and you can follow me on LinkedIn. If you are inspired today and want to join our giving circle, please do so on our website, startupsforgood.com. Thank you.